Well, here in Genesis chapter 45, where we pick back up, we are, again, right in the middle of this sort of, and I use the term progressive um, revelation of Joseph to his brothers. Uh, again, uh, they've been separated for some 20 plus years at this point. Uh, as a result of them rejecting Joseph many, many years earlier uh, in his teenage years, ultimately him being sold off to a distant land, being there in Egypt, going through his own trials and challenges and sufferings. But then ultimately God working all those things together for the ultimate good and intended calling of Joseph's life as he then one day, interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh, is in a day promoted to the, in a sense, position the second in charge over the Egyptian empire, the prime minister or governor over all of Egypt, administrating, remember, uh, the uh, storing up and preparations during that seven years of plenty and prosperity so that when then a seven-year severe famine came, not only over the land of Egypt, but over all the lands in that day, that there would be storehouses of grain so that people could survive uh, there in the Egyptian empire. As a result of that, people are now coming to Egypt to buy grain as well. And together with others traveling to Egypt, Joseph's long-lost brothers, who he has not seen uh, for 20-plus years, show up in the midst of those individuals and emissaries coming from other countries. They don't recognize Joseph, but he recognizes them right away. And we saw that he didn't instantly reveal himself to them. Uh, but instead, he kind of took them through these testings. We watched sort of three different testings that Joseph has put them through. Again, not trying to be cruel with them, but in a sense, just in conservative stewardship, wanting to see where their hearts are at, uh, wanting to make sure that their hearts are, are, are in maybe a different place than where they were 20 plus years earlier when they were cruel and, and treated him harshly when they had threw him in a pit and then ultimately sold him off and went back and told the father that he had been killed by an animal. So he put them through these testings, selling them grain, but sending them back and forth, keeping them in prison. As we left off last time at the end of this third test, uh, remember Joseph had let them go free and sent them away. They had brought their younger brother Benjamin back with them on this sort of last testing and requirement he made of them to prove their character. And again, they don't know who he is yet at this point. And remember that as Joseph sent them away, uh, he purposely planted his silver cup uh, in the sack of Benjamin, caused them then to be caught, in a sense, Benjamin's caught red-handed. He sends one of his messengers out and they say, hey, I can't believe after we gave you grain and treated you guys so well that you would steal the silver cup of divination from uh, Joseph's uh, palace, and, and how could you do such a thing? And they, we would never do that. And as they uncovered their sacks, lo and behold, there was that silver cup purposely planted in Benjamin's sack. And rather than them abandoning their younger brother Benjamin, showing their true change of character and that their hearts had come around full circle in the many years that had passed, they all went back in loyalty and support of their younger brother. Judah then, remember, began to intercede on behalf of his brother Benjamin, uh, this incredible picture of, of Christ there in intercession. And then more than that, at the end of chapter 44, where we left off, remember, uh, he actually was offering himself in a substitutionary way, saying, look, if you have to keep one of us for the punishment of the guilt of this crime, even though Benjamin was perceived to be the guilty one, please, it would crush my father's heart. We couldn't break our father's heart. I'll step into his place. I'll be his substitute. Let me serve his punishment and let him go free. And at that point, Joseph recognizes now, wow, these brothers of mine have had a tremendous change of character over those 20 years, God had matured them. Their hearts had gone from being cruel and, and, and selfish and bitter to now there's a compassion. They're concerned about their younger brother. Judah, who was the one who recommended that they sell off Joseph 20 plus years prior, is now standing in the gap and interceding and saying, hey, please don't punish my brother. Let me take my brother's punishment for him. So Joseph now sees true to color, wow, uh, they've changed. Uh, their hearts are in the right place. They've taken responsibility for their sin and the guilt of the things they've done. 
And now as a result of that, he is ready to reveal himself uh, to them so that reconciliation can happen. And as I said, uh, again, this is a part of a process. And I think reconciliation really is intended to be a process. And as we look at this story, probably one of the greatest uh, literary narratives that we have of reconciliation, uh, of family restoration when problems and things happen, and just incredible principles. Again, it's not just, well, you know, let's just ignore what happened and brush it under the rug and just act like... No, instead you see that there's a real dealing with issues and, and making sure, you know, that there's a proper understanding. And, and this is healthy reconciliation. This is proper reconciliation where things are dealt with and discussed and there's a true exchange of forgiveness and an honest admission and and discussion of what things happened you know too often i think that we you know have a very wrong perception even let me go so far to say among christians and the body of christ of what we call at times forgiveness and reconciliation where what we do is we just ignore and act like something never really ever happened it's never dealt with. It's never properly brought into light or discussed. And we just say, okay, we'll just we'll just act like it didn't happen. And time heals all wounds. And let bygones be bygones. And and we try and just act like it ever happened. And I don't really think that's the heart of God. And I don't think true healing, forgiveness, and reconciliation can honestly happen unless things are brought forth into the light and there's a sincerity of heart in both parties and a mutual exchange and discussion and so forth. Uh, and this is just a beautiful portrayal, really, of, of what the heart of God intends to be. And again, keep in mind, this all portrays Jesus and his revelation of himself to us as he reveals himself to you and I. Again, we'll see in a secondary sense his revelation uh, of himself ultimately to his people Israel. We'll talk a little bit about that this evening. But keep in mind, even when we are reconciled to God, there's a process involved. Uh, you know, part of me experiencing the forgiveness of Christ and being reconciled to God relationally was me having to come into a true admission and confrontation personally of my own guilt before God. Conviction is necessary for conversion. And there needs to be, according to what I read in the Bible, genuine repentance and confession in order to receive forgiveness and the gift of eternal life and salvation. Again, God, we don't truly understand that we need you know, and embrace salvation unless we know we need to be saved. So there's something that exchanges between us and God as well where God brings us to that place and then recognizing our guilt as a sinner the reconciliation with God happens. So again, just beautifully portrayed great lessons to learn in regards to this. We left kind of a cliffhanger last time where Judah was interceding and then we're waiting for Joseph. And it says, chapter 45, verse 1, that Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood before him. So he at this point is just so overwhelmed with emotion. Two times prior to this, remember, he's already gone off and wept because Everything in his heart is wanting to just embrace his brothers, and, and, he, and he loves them. He's not trying to be punitive with them. He's not trying to punish them and hold them under his thumb. But he's just patiently waiting on God's timing. And that's hard, you know, because he, he's seeking to be led of the Lord. He wants reconciliation. He wants healing and forgiveness. And, and he wants to embrace his brothers and reveal himself to them. But I believe Joseph, as a man of God we see him in the Bible, is seeking the Lord, and the Lord's directing him. And he's patiently walking through a process in this, but he is just, at this point, chapter 45, verse 1 now, just overwhelmed. Notice it says that he could not restrain himself. Literally, he just, everything in the, the bowels of his mercy and the compassion within him and the love is just so overflowing. So you're talking 22 years of pent-up emotions that he has been holding in, and now he just comes to the spot where he can no longer restrain himself, and, and he wants to make himself known. It says, before all those who stood, he cried out, notice verse 1, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. So this incredible emotional experience where Joseph now comes to the place, he's ready, it says, to make himself known 
to his brothers. And notice it says, verse 1, that he makes all of his household servants and the Egyptians, again, uh, these servants who attend to his needs there, uh, in his sense, his government position and the palace-type environment he's living in, he tells them all, look, everyone must leave the room. And I wonder if the servants were maybe even thinking, is, is, you know, is, is that safe, sir? I mean, you want us to leave you in this room with these Hebrews? They kind of have seemed to be a little bit shady. You know, the, you know that we've had some... And, and, no, get out. Everyone needs... Why? Because he wants to reveal himself to them, and this is a family situation. And I find it interesting. Joseph's mentality is, you know, this is a family matter. And what happens in a family stays in a family. And I like Joseph's attitude in this. Everybody else get out. I don't need spectators involved when I'm dealing with a family issue. This, this, this is something that, that, that is amongst me and my brothers. And so therefore, he, he desires a sense of privacy. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. So he says, look, this, this doesn't pertain to these servants and others. They're not aware of this, the family dynamics. So he puts them out because he wants a sense of... Uh, of privacy. This is an intimate issue here. And so he puts them out. And, and I love how it says that he made himself known to his brothers. He revealed himself to them. It made himself known. And, and I love how in the same verse it says he could not restrain himself from what? From making himself known to his brothers. Do you see how bad he wanted to make himself known and reveal himself to his brothers? And again, as we look at Joseph as a typology and a picture of Jesus, do you know how much the heart of Jesus yearns to make himself known to people? There are people that we, we desire strongly that they would come to know the Lord. You know, we know him now, and so we long to see our spouse or our children, maybe, or our parent or, you know, or, or a friend or something, and we want the Lord to make himself known to them and our heart yearns for it. Listen, that's nothing in comparison to how much the Lord's heart. He, 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 is, he is literally yearning in his heart to want to make himself known. And the only way he can be known is if he makes himself known. Again, Jesus speaks of that in the Gospels, how no one uh, truly can know the Father unless the, the Father and the Son reveal himself to them. So uh, there is a process that's involved of, of the revelation of the Lord making himself known. Joseph here, as he begins to weep in this moment, it's so loud. It says he wept aloud. The Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. So, again, not very common. You know, maybe what? Once, twice uh, in a man's life, would, would not only to, to cry, but literally to weep out loud. I mean, some men, maybe never that would happen. I mean, this is an incredible emotional experience that he's going through here as he weeps out loud and they're hearing what's taking place because of the event that's happening. In verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, hear his first words, three of them, I am Joseph. Can you imagine? I mean, the text tells us nothing of it, but can you imagine like a thunderbolt how that must have just radiated out of his mouth into the hearts and minds of these brothers who, who again, it's been 22 years. And to, to hear that revelation for him to make himself known and to say to them, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers, as said, could not answer him, for they were dismayed. I bet they were. The Hebrew literally indicates, you know, to be struck with fear, again, in his presence. Again, why? Not only are they just shocked because this is Joseph, but who is Joseph? He is second in charge with all the authority and the power of the entire Egyptian empire. And they're thinking... Man, it'd be bad enough if Joey just got buff and had a grudge. You understand what I'm saying? Like, I am Joseph, and I've also gotten pretty... So, uh, well, I need to talk to... But this guy's got the entire Egyptian empire at his backing, at his beck and call, and he's just revealed himself, and, and his brothers are just shocked. They're, they're dismayed. They're speechless, the idea is. Terrified and overwhelmed because they have no idea, oh my goodness, what does that mean? 
off with our heads. I mean, this is the end. I mean, he has got to have so much bitterness in his heart. There must be so much, you know, anger and animosity. I can't imagine 20 plus years how much would they would be thinking would be built up inside of him as he reveals himself to them at this point. So, again, verse 3, those words, though, I am Joseph. And in three words, three simple words, he reveals and manifests himself and makes himself known to his brothers. And, and all of a sudden, relationship has happened again. And I look at this, and I briefly mentioned last week, this reminds me of how in the New Testament, Acts chapter 9, and then we have Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, his testimony recorded multiple times after Acts chapter 9, two other occasions, where when you think of Saul of Tarsus' testimony, here's a Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, incredible animosity towards right this Christian sect and yet Jesus goes after him in his complete I mean he is everything anti-Christian you could possibly imagine and Jesus goes after him on the Damascus road and he is, is Saul of Tarsus looking for Jesus he certainly is not but Jesus was looking for Saul of Tarsus and Jesus goes to him knocks him in a sense uh, off of his uh, horse shines the brilliance of his glory into his life and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says, who are you, Lord? And these three words, I am Jesus. I am Joseph. I am Jesus. And in three words, Saul goes from being a sinner to being a saint. Three words. And I'll tell you something. It is not real complicated for Jesus to reveal himself and manifest himself to people. When the time is right and the ordained appointed hour for the Holy Spirit to save a person's soul comes to pass. Listen, don't worry, God's not limited. God doesn't even need a lot of words. (laughs) In three words, in three powerful, sincere words... God can speak into the soul. Jesus can, can speak into the life of a person and just say to them, again, in their own heart language, their own situation, you know, in their own Saul of Tarsus moment. It's what he did for me. There just comes that moment where it's through a person listening to a Bible study or, again, you know, sitting in the privacy of their own home or whatever. Wherever it is, in that appointed hour at the right moment, Jesus is more than able to just reveal himself to a person and say, I am Jesus to their soul, and instantly change happens. Revelation takes place to where they become dismayed in the Lord's presence, and all of a sudden they realize who he is in a way that they didn't before. Now, what's interesting here, keep in mind, is Joseph is revealing himself to his brothers. Now, Acts chapter 7 is the place where, remember, we have Stephen, who right before he's stoned, he gives like this incredible explanation of the history of Israel. And he gives this incredible explanation of the history of Israel. And in the midst of it, Acts chapter 7, let me just read you the words of Stephen. It says this in Acts 7. And the second time, Stephen says, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. When Stephen is giving his, in a sense, historical dissertation and documenting the history of the nation of Israel, it's interesting the Holy Spirit records for us that Stephen, as he's sharing this message before a Jewish crowd, took note and said it was the second time that Joseph was made known to his brothers, indicating what? That the first time when Joseph sought to make known to his brothers who he was, what did they do? They rejected him, remember? They rejected him, they hated him, they cast him in a pit, and they didn't want to hear anything about it. But the second time Joseph encountered his brothers, he he became known for who he was when he revealed himself to them. And of course, again, the picture in all of that, how that is exactly, as we look at the life of Joseph, yes, it's a historical narrative, but understand it's also pregnant, in a sense, with prophetic indication of exactly who Jesus is and what Jesus would do, because the Bible is very clear to us, both Old and New Testament, that that's exactly what would happen between Jesus and the nation of Israel, his chosen people Israel. John tells us in his gospel, John chapter 1, that Jesus came to his own, but his own received him not. The first time Jesus came to the nation of Israel, they did not recognize him for who he was. 
They did not realize and see him as the Messiah of Israel. Instead, just like Joseph's brothers treated him, he was despised, right? He was despised, he was rejected, he was refused. And the first time he came, in a sense, uh, he was not recognized and was mistreated the first time, just like Joseph's brothers were him. And again, the brothers of Joseph become the, ultimately the tribes of Israel. But yet the Bible tells us in places like Zechariah 12 and 13 that the second time Jesus comes, that their eyes will see him for who he is. That the, the return of Christ, one day the Jews, the nation of Israel, will see Jesus as their Messiah and realize the first time that they had rejected him. Listen to Zechariah 13. It says this in prophecy, Zechariah 13. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And then he will answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Zechariah 12 tells this, that it shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Listen, the spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me whom they have pierced. And yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and will grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. So in the same way that as Joseph's brothers here the second time recognize him after refusing and rejecting him the first time, it's a perfect por portrayal of what will happen with Jesus with the nation of Israel, that the first time he sought to reveal himself, they didn't recognize him, they refused him, but there is coming a time yet still ahead of us when Jesus will come again and will reveal himself and the eyes of the Jews and the nation of Israel will be opened. The Bible says that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. So again, as you look at this story with Joseph revealing himself to his brothers, it's also very beautiful, uh, again, as you lay over it, the picture of how Jesus will reveal himself to his brothers, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Well, verse 4, let's go back to our story here. I just wanted to set that before you. As they're dismayed as Joseph reveals himself, it says, verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, please, come near to me. So they came near. And I wonder, thinking, come near for what? You know, <laughs> Come near to me. He's probably thinking you're going to get him in a you know, headlock and, and just start taking him on or something. You know, maybe he's been trained with some special forces, you know, the Egyptian uh, martial arts or something. I don't know what I would be thinking. If I put myself into the story there. We just read it. But there's all kinds of emotions and thoughts of 20 plus years and really bad blood between these uh, brothers here. So he says, please come near me. So they came near and he said to them, I am Joseph, your brother. Notice whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Wow. Talk about incredible, incredible maturity and perspective that Joseph had when he dealt with his brothers, seeking reconciliation between them. And I want you to take notice of the balance here again too. Take notice, as Joseph reveals himself to them, he asks them to come near. Again, there's a need for intimacy. There's a need for direct connection, you know, that, that this would be, you know, discussed and talked through. And, and he says to them, I am your brother Joseph, he says, whom you sold into Egypt. He says again in verse 5, you sold me here. So what's he doing? He, he's not just ignoring and acting like what happened never happened. He's not doing that. He, he's, he's being forthright. Yes, you... You sold me into Egypt. You did do this. What you did was evil. What you did was wrong. It was hurtful. It was destructive and damaging in my life. Again, he doesn't just—he doesn't just act like it doesn't happen. And typically, you know, I, I find often people will err on one of two sides. You know, either they want to harp on everything that happened and never want to forgive, and and be able to see the bigger picture. Okay, yes, that happened, but. You know, it, it doesn't have to be, you know, bitter and, 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 and hurtful forever and ever. And let's always just be a victim and have venom towards somebody. And, and there's ne either that or people want to fly to the other extreme almost in a, a you know, pseudo spiritual way and just, oh, well, you know, God forgives you. So I forgive you. And, and, and just act like it never really ever happened. And that is not healthy either. I don't think that that's a healthier and appropriate thing. 
I think there's a balance that we need to find. And Joseph here brings to the table the reality of what happened. Yes, I want you to understand what you did. It was wrong and it was hurtful. And I think we need to share things. We need to be forthright and honest in these moments of communication to work through things. But notice the balance. He addresses what they did, but he says, but you know what? Don't be grieved or angry with yourselves. And then you can imagine the tremendous guilt these guys would feel. They would feel horribly grieved. I'm sure for 22 years they felt, and again, we've seen their struggle with a guilty conscience. We've been watching that as we go through. They would feel grieved. I can't believe we did what we did. You know, upset, angry with themselves. Whenever people do things that are foolish or hurtful or harmful to their loved ones, who doesn't feel a sense of grief? for hurting somebody or who doesn't feel angry with themselves. Gosh, I can't believe I did that and I treated that person that way. That was so immature years ago or, you know, that was so selfish of me. But he, again, he's trying to release them from that and notice the perspective he brings to the table. This shows you that Joseph had processed this with God. He says, don't be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, but he says, God sent me before you. You sold me here. You did what you did. But God overruled in all the circumstances and ultimately brought about the preservation of life. And he was the one who actually sent me here. Notice he, he reiterates this, verse 6. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Again, verse 7. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Again, because if Joseph wasn't there, quite honestly, nobody in the Egyptian empire or in the known world that day would have survived the famine. It was the wisdom God gave Joseph when Joseph was in the place where he was at the right time to bring about deliverance to many people. And certainly, it ultimately brought deliverance to his family, the nation of Israel, which preserved the Jewish line. And more than that, it preserved the Messianic line. So God had Joseph where he was to not only deliver people in compassion, but more critically and specifically to deliver the nation of Israel and to deliver the messianic line to preserve it through the family of Israel. So now again, verse 8, third time he reemphasizes, so now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh. The idea is someone who gives instruction to Pharaoh, a father gives instruction to a child, and lord over all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. You know, you want to talk about the ability to be able to to forgive, to release, to let go things. Again, not ignoring, but the ability to be able to process it in a healthy way. And we know Joseph's done it. Remember, he named two of his sons. One he named, which literally meant forgetful, and the other one fruitful. And he says, because God has helped me to forget, again, the, the sorrowful, painful, hurtful things that have happened. And he's allowed me to be fruitful, even amidst all the difficulties and problems I've experienced here in the land of Egypt. So Joseph was able to forgive and to process it. And in essence, what you have Joseph saying is, is you know, I came to realize, as I stepped back and I looked at the big picture, that honestly, what you did... All it did was just contribute to the ultimate plan of God that he had for my life and for everyone else. And he was able to see the sovereign hand of God overruling in his life, which helped him not to hang on to things in an unhealthy way and to realize that despite what you did, this is like, again, one man said this is like Romans 8.28 on steroids, you know, for we know that God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. This is what this is a manifestation of. You can picture Joseph, no doubt, as he goes through the whole process and that day that he was elevated to the position he was in Egypt and then he had gave the interpretation and then he's storing up all the grain and then all the, you know, the, 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 you know, then the years of famine come and people begin to come to him and imagine the day, the first time his brother showed up. And he realized it was them, remember, and then he chased them off and he went to be by himself. Can you imagine all of a sudden the wheels turning in Joseph's head? And I just envisioned Joseph going, oh my goodness, God, 
you did all that you did and allowed all that you did to happen in my life over all these years so that I could be in the right place at the right hour at the right time in this position to not only help all these precious people that you created, but so that I could be in a place to bring deliverance and preservation to my own family, the nation of Israel, and to save my family members. And God, you let all this happen in my life so that I could be in this place and be used by you. And, and, and it, was all, it all clicked all of a sudden. It all came to pass. And you know what? I encourage you. You know, hindsight has an incredible perspective. And sometimes we don't see it as we're going through processes. But I promise you, anything that God is allowing and permitting to happen in your life, even the difficulties, the things we don't understand, and the hard things, the painful things, I promise you, you keep loving the Lord and walking in faith and watch and see how God at times will bring you to a moment where then you realize, oh my goodness, all of that, all of this, all those disappointments and hurt. God, it was to bring me so that I would be right here, right now. This is really sweet. <laughs> wow, you were really wise so that you would get me to the place where I'm at now so that I could serve the purpose that I serve. And, you know, it's just a wonderful thing to see how God, he doesn't allow anything to happen in vain. Even the wrong things that people do to one another and the things that happen in our lives, I promise you nothing that has happened in your life, in your past, even horrible things, I'm not saying that God's pleased with what happened. I'm not saying God finds pleasure when people hurt and do cruel things. But I tell you this, God will let nothing be done to you in vain. He will ultimately take it and he can weave it like a, like a, a tapestry. And it may look all gnarled and ugly on one side and then you flip around and you look to the other side and you see this beautiful thing that God weaved out of the things that happened in our life. And Joseph, what an incredible maturity and perspective to let go to try and show love and forgiveness to his brothers. Again, it was not you, he says. I realize ultimately it was God, he says, who sent me here to save your lives, to bring about this great deliverance. Verse 9, he goes on, he says, And hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt, and come down to me, and do not tarry. So he sends them out with a message after he reveals them. He says, listen, hurry, go, tell my father. Again, what's he saying? Go and share the good news. And again, isn't this so often what happens with us? Jesus reveals himself to us. He extends his forgiveness to us. He says, look, all these things are happening in your life. I was letting them take place so that you'd be in the right place, in the right condition, so that I could manifest and reveal myself to you. And now that you know my forgiveness... Don't be grieved or angry with yourself. I forgive you for the sins and the things you've done, but now hurry, go and tell other people that this one whom everybody knew was dead is now alive. Isn't that true of Joseph? He was dead in a sense in the minds of and now he's alive. Go and tell. And that's exactly what we're called to do as Christians. Once we have Jesus revealed to us, we're now to go and tell, to share that news with other people who he is and that he sits upon a throne as a risen risen king with all authority and power. Go, he says, go back, tell my father and tell him to come down here to Egypt who I am and the authority that I have. Verse 10, he says, and you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. So he says, look, go share the message Get our father, bring him back here, and he says, and I want you to dwell nearby me. Why? He says, so that I can provide for you. He says, verse 11, therefore I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. So Joseph, again, knew something that they didn't know. He had insight spiritually in regards to what was... And he says, look, there are still five more years of famine. So don't go back home and stay there. It's not going to be very productive if I have to send resources back and forth. And I want to provide for you. I want you to be near me. And I want to take care of you. And I want to provide for you what you need. In the same way that after Jesus reveals himself to us, he doesn't want a distant relationship. Hey, once in a while, I'll, you know, I'll make contact with you. I'll send you something when you need it. When you get an emergency... Call me up and I'll, one of your emergency prayers and then I'll do something for you. No, Jesus wants us to be near him. 
He wants us to be as near to him as possible. Once he reveals himself, it's so that we would have a close, intimate relationship. And Joseph says to his brothers, look, I want you to come and dwell right here, right where I'm at, in the same territory as me, so that you'll be near to me. He says, in Goshen, and Goshen was uh, no uh, you know, small opportunity. That was a 900-square-mile, very fertile crescent, which was excellent for grazing, uh, of which it would be good for them uh, as Hebrews because they were shepherds and they took care of animals. So he says, look, I want to give you, in essence, he says, I want you to come and dwell in the best part of the land. I want to, I want, I'm preparing a place for you. And isn't that what Jesus does for us too? He prepares, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He tells us in John chapter 14, he says, come, dwell in the place that I prepare for you. Be near to me and I will provide for you. Interesting, if they would be where they were supposed to be, Joseph would provide for them everything that they needed when they got there. In the same way with us, you know, if, if we listen to Jesus and we stay close to Jesus and we dwell in our Goshen or whatever that may be, be that as it may, if we dwell in the place the Lord would have us to dwell in, then the Lord's promises in that place he'll provide for us. He'll take care of us. If we're where we're supposed to be, near to him, and where he's instructed us to be at, uh, I think the promise becomes to us, there, I'll provide for you. You step outside of my will, in a sense, you're stepping out of the boundaries of my blessing. And I think the Lord at times will, if we do step out of those boundaries, he'll let us struggle to get our attention. I'm not saying he cuts us off, but when we're in the center of the will of the Lord, it's amazing how when we're where he wants us to be, how his blessing and his provision is a confirmation of that. Again, we've often said before among the Calvary Chapel movement, you know, where God guides, God provides. And it's one of the clearest indicators. If the Lord's in something and the Lord's directing, one of the clearest confirmations is theirs will provide. He will provide, which you have to live by that on both sides. If the Lord's not providing, then you have to step back and say, maybe we didn't follow the Lord. Then. <laughs> maybe we went where we weren't supposed to go. And we should be humble enough to admit that and cut ties and get out rather than beg and beat people up and say, uh, we're in trouble, so now you've got to play God and give us your money and provide for us. No, 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 that's wrong. The Lord, the Bible says, my God shall supply all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We have one job, follow the direction of the Lord, be in the place where he leads us, and there he will provide for us for our household, for our families, in the ways in which Joseph here, his gracious heart, he wanted to provide for his brothers and father. Verse 12, he says, And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. It's me. He's trying to reiterate to them. They're probably sitting there, you know, dazed, as not even hearing maybe half of what he's saying. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. And then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Again, these were the two, remember, who had Rachel as the most. So this was his one, the younger brother, Benjamin, his one true brother that he shared both mother and father with. So an incredible emotional exchange here. Verse 15, moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and after that his brothers talked with him. Again, do you see the face-to-face -face here? This is, this is genuine reconciliation. This is genuine reconciliation. Two people, face-to-face, -face, talking things out, an exchange of, you know, of what needs to be said, genuine conversation. Oh, I'm so sorry for what I did, and I, you know, I really apologize, and I, and I, that's right, you know. I forgive you, and I see how God's used it despite what happened. And again, it says his brothers talked with him. It doesn't tell us what they said, but there's an exchange here. There was heart-to-heart -heart conversation that took place. They're weeping, they're kissing, they're embracing one another. This is a genuine experience of communication and reconciliation, again, face-to-face, -face, the way that it intends to be when it's a sincere and a genuine experience. Again, whether a family or a marriage or you know between brothers and sisters in the Lord, this is a beautiful picture of that. And here, this exchange is taking place among Joseph and his brothers. Interesting, his brothers talked with him. They didn't want anything to do with him years ago. Remember, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't even speak to him. It says they hated him so much. But now you can tell something's happened because there's healthy 
genuine communication. Imagine the things they're talking about over what's happened the past 22 years. Them describing what had happened over those years, how bad they felt about what they did. Him saying, let me tell you what happened. i got to tell you guys the story from when you sold me. And then I went to Potiphar's house, and oh, you should have seen this crazy lady there. And she came after me, and then she, and I kept resisting her, trying to dodge her. And then she growled, and I went, yeah, man, was so embarrassing. I'm running out my, you know. And, and it's just, imagine just recounting the story. Again, the Bible's silent on it, but this is a lot of background. They're exchanging, having this heart-to-heart talk with one another. Verse 16, now the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So again, news like that traveled very quickly through the house of Pharaoh. Again, so verse 16 says, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. Interesting. Why did it please them well? Because Joseph had incredible respect among Pharaoh and his servants. Even though Joseph was a Hebrew and they knew he wasn't an Egyptian, they knew he was always a Hebrew slave that had come out of prison that was sold ultimately from a foreign land in their country. Nonetheless, Joseph had earned an incredible level of respect by his reputation. In a sense, he was their savior. You understand what I'm saying? He he saved Pharaoh's empire. So Pharaoh loved Joseph, and the servants of, of Joseph and Pharaoh loved Joseph. So when they heard this news for Joseph... Because of his great reputation, they were very happy and well-pleased. Look, you can tell, verse 17, it says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan and bring your father, again, this is Pharaoh's words now, bring your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, he says. Do this, take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives and bring your father and come. And also, verse 20 says, do not be concerned about your goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Interesting to see how not only is Joseph gracious and kind to them, but despite what they've done, and what things they did in their past. You want to talk about blessing upon blessing being heaped upon them. Now Pharaoh steps forward and he says, you know what, hey, go back. Get your father. And he says, and while you're going back so that he believes all this is true and so that you are well blessed and taken care of, he loads them down. Notice it says with carts of all these wonderful supplies. We're going to read in the next verses. And he says, and don't be concerned about anything because the best, the best of the land of Egypt, it's going to be yours. The blessings I'm going to bestow upon you. And, and take in consideration, here's Joseph's brothers, and they are experiencing the blessings of the throne. For what reason? Because of their relationship with Joseph. Because of their relationship with Joseph, they are now recipients of all the power and the authority and the blessings and the best that the throne could offer to them in their lives. And in the same way, for you and I, we are recipients of the blessings of the grace of God and his goodness and his kindness and all the you know, incredible spiritual and material blessings that we experience in our lives. And everything that flows from the throne of God that is good and blesses our lives that we receive, it's all for one reason. And that one reason is this, because of our relationship with Jesus. Because of our relationship with Jesus and his relationship to the throne, we experience good in our lives and blessing in our lives. It has nothing to do with us. We deserve nothing. But it's the grace of God that flows into our lives because of our relationship to Jesus. Just like them, they were being blessed because of a relationship with Joseph and coming from the throne upon which he represented. Verse 21, And the sons of Israel did so. Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. It would be about a three- to four-week journey, most likely, to get all the way back to Canaan. And he gave all of them, to each man, changes of garments. Again, that was a, a big deal in that day. Clothing was a very valuable commodity. So that was, again, we don't think of that in our mindset, but a very uh, valuable commodity. But to Benjamin, he gave, notice, 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent 
to his father these things, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father and for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. So he sends them forth with all these blessings. And look at the last words he says to them as they're departing to go back to Canaan. He says to them, great counsel, verse 24, see that you do not become troubled along the way. Why? Because Joseph understands human nature. And he's thinking, you know what? I just revealed myself to them, told them, look, don't be angry with yourself. Don't be grieved over what you did. I see how God's overruled in it all. I love you. I forgive you. I want to provide for you. I want to take care of you. They become overwhelmed with the grace and the love and the forgiveness Joseph has just shown to them. But he says, look, I know what you're going to do. You're going to leave here. And then on that long journey back, you're going to start trying to think through it on your think, oh, this can't be true. This is too good to be true. This is, this is probably just another trick. <laughs> as much as we deserve to be punished and for all... This just this can't be possible. At some point, he's going to catch up with us and say, "Do you really think you rats that I'm going to?" And, and it's going to be off with our heads. And he knows that the guilty conscience and condemnation would begin to overflow in them. So he says, "Listen, don't overthink it. Don't you trouble yourselves. All the love, all the forgiveness, it's real. I really mean it." And see, I think that's good counsel for us sometimes because we have a tendency sometimes to trouble ourselves along the way. Along the way, we start to second-guess things. We start to think, oh, maybe the love of God really couldn't be that good. And it seemed like God was really meant that, that he loved me and he forgave me and he's got a new plan for my life now that I'm a Christian. But, man, this all seems too good to be true. Maybe this is, maybe I'm just a little overthinking this and it's just, it seems like it's a dream. And, and at some moment, God's just going to pull the rug out from under me because I'm such a wretch and I deserve to be punished. And, and we overthink things and God says, what are you doing? Stop, don't do that to yourself. Don't trouble yourself. Why are you troubling yourself? Stop troubling yourself. You're thinking too hard. Stop second guessing it. And I think sometimes in our own lives, the Lord begins to direct us. He begins to bless and do good things in our life or it seems like he's working in a way. And I know I can. Then you get into it and you're, you're, you're beginning to experience what looks like God's got something going on. And then you start along the way, you start to second guess. And you think, oh man, maybe this, this ain't going to work out. <laughs> this, uh, and we start to trouble ourselves along the way instead of just believing by faith. And it's good counsel, I think, for any one of us. See that you do not become troubled along the way. Don't trouble yourself. Tonight, if you're troubling yourself, stop. Stop troubling yourself. If you're in relationship with Jesus, you're not in trouble. You're under the blood of Christ. And that means you're in the grace of God. And you don't have to trouble yourself despite who you are because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Verse 25 says, They went up out of Egypt, came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father, and they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. And he is the governor over all the land of Egypt, and Jacob's heart stood still. <laughs> the idea literally in Hebrew means that, you know, that, that he stopped breathing, or he almost had a heart attack, the idea is. His heart stood still because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry them, the spirit of Jacob their father revived, and then Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So imagine again this experience. Such a short snapshot to describe what must have been a very interesting and sensitive conversation. They now have to go back. And now they've experienced the grace and the love and the forgiveness of Joseph. But guess what they have to do? They have to go back and they have to look their father Jacob in the eye who for 22 years they have lived a lie in front of saying that Joseph, their younger brother, had been attacked by an animal and killed his favored special son. And now they have to look him in the eye and say, not only is Joseph alive, uh, Pop, uh, we, we were kind of behind that. And, and so you can imagine the, the incredible sensitivity. And again, we're not told what transpired, but we can imagine. Again, it says here that Jacob's heart, when he heard the news, at first he just he couldn't even believe it. It seemed too good to be true. You mean my son 
who I have had no relationship for 22 years is alive. And I can have relationship with him again now. And what that would do to the heart of any parent, after 22 years of separation for whatever reason from their you know, beloved son or daughter, that, that their heart would literally stand still and how their heart would revive. It says that when he heard all the testimony, interesting verse 27, and he saw the carts which Joseph had sent. That's when his spirit revived. I almost picture the idea of, you know, here they're telling Jacob, and it's almost like he... You know, he's having a heart attack because he can't believe this. And they're trying, they're telling the story, and it almost sounds, again, what? Too good to be true. And one of them says, Pop, look at the caravan. <laughs> look at all those Egyptian carts. Do, do you think we just hit the lotto over there in Egypt or something? I mean, <laughs> look at all this stuff. You know, where do you think this came from? And he's just, oh, my God. And then the reality kind of said, it makes you wonder if maybe that was a part of the process, that all those carts and caravans were to kind of reinforce circumstantially the testimony of the story that they told him. So again, here's Jacob now realizing all that's happened. And notice, he's not concerned about food. He's not concerned about his survival through the famine. The only thing he's concerned about is he says, I just want to go see my son. I just want to go see my son. And just the beauty of that, again, what was the value to Jacob relationship? He didn't care. Joseph is the prime minister of all of Egypt. He's so rich, Dad. Look at all these kids. This, look at all these. Does he care about that? Well, he cares about one thing, relationship. You mean I can have a relationship with my son again? That's what has value. And you know, what a great lesson Jacob even teaches us there in that, you know, God help us to put value on the right things. You know, you know what matters the most? You know what has the highest value? Relationship. The people in your lives and the relationships that you have, that you maintain those relationships, that you pursue those relationships, if need be, bring reconciliation in relationships, because what the biggest value is, is people. Not possessions, not stuff. It's people. And Jacob shows an incredible example of that here. Well, why don't we stand? Let's let's close out in a word of prayer together. And chapter 46 is kind of a good then transition spot as it'll begin to show us how Jacob then gets to go back and him and Joseph once again have a incredible encounter as they meet one another after those years. Father, thank you for your word and time tonight to be together to to study this chapter, Lord, to consider not only the narrative of what it teaches historically, Lord, literal events, but to see how your spirit, O oh God, is weaved through it, lessons and testimonies about your son Jesus, things, Lord, that we can see for ourselves regarding our relationship with him and the relationship that he has and, and will one day work among with the nation of Israel as your chosen people. And Lord, the lessons that we can glean for our own relationships, help us, Lord, by the grace of God, to not just be hearers, but doers of your word, believing what you've spoken within it. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.